0: that's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. plus.
1: heard of or maybe even had experience with the Dixie Mafia if not you're in for a surprise if you don't know anything about it stay tuned because um my guest today is going to explain a lot about the Dixie Mafia you're listening to crime wire On the Inside Lens Network, our regular host, Dennis Griffin, isn't with us today, but I'm the co-host, Delilah Jones of ImaginePublicity.com. Some of the podcasts on the Inside Lens Network highlight criminal cases, some which are still open investigations. Our intent is to allow guests to present information for consideration by listeners. Our podcasts and hosts in no way represent our guests. We don't claim to solve cases, nor do we wish to jeopardize open investigations. Our guests present their own information, and while we may suggest resources and assistance, We're not liable for what they're going to do with it. Um, My guest today has just released a brand-new book, Silenced by the Dixie Mafia. Sonova Cantrell may be known for her fedora, but she wears many hats. She volunteers with Missouri Missing Organization by highlighting obscure cold cases on her true crime blog to help generate tips. She also runs the Murdered in Mississippi website, where she posts Mobster Monday's post highlighting stories about the Dixie Mafia. She firmly believes together we can give grieving families answers, hope, and support. She's also the owner of Sonova's Simply Biz author coaching service. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I would like listeners to get to know you. Um, tell us a little bit about your background, how you Got into writing and all of the all of the different things. I know you have a lot of different enterprises. I don't know how you juggle all those balls, but I know you're doing a lot of things out there. So let's let's talk about that.
2: Uh, yes, well, I am. Uh, I, I've been a professional writer for uh, the last decade or so, but I've actually been writing all of my life, and it's one of those things where um, I it was just kind of it just came natural to me so i've got notebooks from back in high school where i was writing short stories and things like that so uh becoming a writer uh was something i believe i was destined to do whether i realized it or not it took me a while to figure out what what my uh my ability was going to be but uh i became a professional writer and um i started out as a freelance journalist and and uh then got my first book traditionally published uh, 10 years ago, and uh, now a decade later, I've got eight, tr- uh, eight published books. I have my own uh, publishing house, Sunova Publishing, Sonova Inc. Publishing, and uh, then I do author coaching and things on the side as well, but uh, I, I still have the passion for helping people get cold cases, get publicity for them because I'm a writer and a marketer, so if I can take a case and just write about it and then push it out. To a wide audience, I know we can bring in leads for law enforcement and maybe get some cases solved. So that's, that's where my passion and my heart is, and that's how I actually met the lady that um, I wrote about in this book.
1: Yeah. What was it about I'm, – I'm, I'm assuming I think most of your books are crime-related. What took you down that path?
2: Uh, that was actually one of those happy accidents, I guess. Um, I was the president of a local writer's guild, and a ex-gangster from Chicago had uh, gotten his life somewhat straightened up and was trying to start a new path, and he approached one of the members of the group and asked to, someone to write his biography, and nobody would touch it, and they, they you know, passed him on up to me. And uh, I met with him, and and, and that's kind of what started the process. And uh, I ended up writing Unorganized Crime, which was his biography. And then um, in the middle of all that, if you guys follow me for a while or you see me anywhere, I've always got the fedora on that's kind of become my author brand. That was another happy accident. And Sydney, the, the ex-gangster in Unorganized Crime, he actually – uh created that by accident we were going to our first little book signing at this little bookstore and he had brought two matching black fedoras and he says here wear this you'll look cute in it and i said okay whatever and i stuck it on and then i did a little promo video on facebook just a few seconds come out and see us you know how you always do and then two weeks later i ended up in this little uh hole in the wall town and um in this library and the library was actually pretty nice but the town i i I didn't know if anybody even knew it was on the map, you know, and so I ended up in a two hour author event at this little library and I didn't wear a hat. And within that two hours, six people asked me where the hat was. And so I realized that I had created a brand and a better stick with it. Now, all these years later, it's just become kind of a part of me and, and quite frankly, I don't have to fix my hair, so it works quite it works quite well. So, but that's kind of what started me on true crime, and that's kind of what created my author brand.
1: What other crimes have you written about? What let's just kind of quickly go through some of the books that you have out there. Yes, um,
2: I have um, I have several true crime books, and I've written about hundreds of cases because I ran a weekly blog. And that potential viewership is, has grown up to about half a million. So I've got it to where I am constantly creating content and I have well over 300 cases that I've written about. And then now, because I'm I'm kind of going into other avenues of business as well, I've brought on some guest bloggers. And so we're constantly bringing in new content for the, the viewers and the readers. And so uh, it is, I don't go over the um, the well-documented cases in the media. I don't go over the John Benay Ramseys. I don't go over uh, all those cases that have just been uh, reiterated so much in the media that they've almost destroyed the case. I don't take those kinds of cases. I take the cases that you've got a mother that the daughter's been missing for 12 years and nobody wants to talk about it. Those are the kinds of cases I take. Um, and so we've we've covered missing persons, we've covered possible serial killers, we've covered um, you know um, homicides unsolved homicides, we've we've covered all sorts of cases, and that's kind of what built up my um, my collection of works, you might say. That's kind of what built it up. But then I noticed after the blog, um, by the end of the next year. That blog is so far down the list that there is the case is starting to be uh, forgotten again, and so I decided at the end of the year I would take all of the the cases and I would compile them into a case files book. So that way, um, the it gives them another little push, you know, because when I push the book, then it pushes the case, and um, and so and then of course I give the the, van, the family members the option of if they want in the book or not. I mean, if they don't want it, then I don't put them in there. But, um, Mm -hmm. excuse me, but um, so that's kind of what started that. Um, The first year of my blog, I was still trying to uh, figure out what I needed to do and kind of figure out. And so I was actually following the FBI art crime team. And the first year worth of cases was all about, Um, all these museum heists and and, uh, stolen artworks and the FBI chasing them all over the globe trying to get them back. And and so the first Case Files book was Snatched, which is the FBI's um, top 10 art crimes and and a few extras thrown in there. And so that's what the first uh, that series of blogs became a Case Files book. Then I had a series um and and you can kind of tell at the beginning i was just trying to you know find my wings you know trying to figure out what was really uh would work well so i went from our crime and then i started doing uh following all the crazy um uh, criminal stories you see in the news, you know, one guy goes and tries to rob a bank with a toilet plunger, you know, those kind of stories. So I wrote an entire series of uh, two or three little books, a series of books called Seriously Stupid Criminals and Seriously Stupid Disguises. And, you know, so I had two or three of those little ones um, that became a box set of ebooks. And so that there's those. And then, then I found after I, you know, was trying to find, what worked. I finally got into the cold cases and that's where things started to grow and and um, become something. And then I ended up with Shattered, which was the Case Files book of, of all the cases that I had covered that next year in the blog. And um, it just continued to grow from there. So I've got the Unorganized Crime, which is the ex-gangster's biography. I've got the art crime. I've got Humorous Crime, and then I've got Cold Case Books after that. And then this one is the first one on
1: the Dixie Mafia. You've been a busy lady. And, I'm, and I'm, yes, I and I I want to tell you, and I want to tell everyone out there, happy birthday. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, <thank> missed, <laughs> I think I, I saw it on Facebook, and I missed wishing you a happy birthday, so I'm doing it oh, today. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank let you. me ask you, it's when great. you When you make a decision to cover, uh, let's say, one of the cold cases, what kind of research do you do as a writer? Um, Being cold cases, I'm sure that it's not easy to extract information from too many law enforcement agencies because they kind of like to keep things close. So what have you been successful in doing as far as research?
2: Well, I do contact uh, law enforcement um, and let them know that I'm writing about the case um, because sometimes uh, they do have some things that they will share that uh, maybe wasn't over, that wasn't discovered or maybe that they had decided to keep close 20 years ago when the, a newspaper article went by. You know, So I spend thousands of hours in newspaper archives and things. But then I will contact, you know, usually I don't seek out cases anymore. They come to me. I've got a case submission form on my website, and people are are constantly sending in cases. So I don't actually go out and find cases. Um, They come to me. And then so I will, you know, talk to whoever sent me the case, you know, find out their motivations, what they think, you know, um, if they are the family member, then I will interview them. Um, if they are a friend, I will ask, you know, if they can get me contact with the family members. Um, but then I do go ahead and make sure and reach out to law enforcement because sometimes there's a little bit of tidbits that they can share. Um, sometimes they will give you a quote, um, you know, and then I just like to let them know that somebody's stirring it up again. Somebody's stirring the pot. Um, and, and it it kind of, you know, breathes new life into it sometimes. And uh, then there are some cases where um, I'm getting tips in, in and I have to contact law enforcement anyway. So it works out better if I've already introduced myself during the process than say, oh, hey, by the way, I've never talked to you before but I'm a crime writer and I run this big blog and I've gotten 15 tips in the last 24 hours since my blog. You know, like, okay, what, who are you? You know? And so you kind of have to, it's a little easier if you introduce yourself from the beginning. Um, But then there are some cases that um, you know, they are so cold that it doesn't look like anybody's working on the case and there's no one to talk to. And, uh, so I, I research to the point of exhaustion to where there's nothing else out there that I can find before I start writing. And, um, uh, then, uh, you know, a lot of times after I run the blog, family members will come forward after I run the blog and they'll give me some more information or they'll correct some information that was incorrect that I found. And, uh, you know, then I'll go in and adjust it. But, uh, uh, I try to do as much research as possible um, when I do a case. Now, if a case is local and it's someplace that I can travel to, I will go. Um, but usually, it's all done over the phone.
1: That's a lot of work. That's a lot of work, yeah, and and yeah. I think you know this this takes me to another avenue. In in like I say, all of these enterprises that you're doing, you're you're coaching service your author coaching mm-hmm. service um, that could be quite uh, important to some budding writers out there to get a hold right. of you and um, yes. get some expert coaching let's yes. let's go into maybe some background history of the Dixie Mafia for people Mm -hmm. out there who maybe have never heard of the Dixie Mafia or what Mm -hmm. it's all about, where it came from, and is it still there? Let's talk about that. Okay. Well, um,
2: for one, people want to say that there's no such thing as the Dixie Mafia um, because they've got so embedded in their brains the Italian stereotypes. And so you've got all this, the Godfather in Hollywood has really romanticized this. Um, there is a organized crime in the South, and it is just not organized the same way. Now, the Sicilian Mafia, they go back all these centuries, and they actually started out with a noble cause. And there's this whole romantic notion of the Sicilian Mafia. Uh, um, but that doesn't exist in the Dixie Mafia. The Dixie Mafia started out because – of uh, of the Great Depression after after the Civil War, uh, all these different things. The South was really extremely poor for for a long time. Uh, certain areas of it was, and so people became um, desensitized to to what moral values they may have had. They may have, you know. And so over the course of time, these people get desperate, and they became um, this now. Does that justify what they've done? No, but but you can kind of see the progression of how it kind of built into this. Now, uh, the state line mob actually started out first, and they had come from another area. Uh, law enforcement come in and run them off, and they ended up kind of migrating over to the state line between Mississippi and Tennessee. Now, some of the main characters you hear in the state line mob stories are Louise Hathcock, Jack Hathcock, um, Toehead White. And then the big sheriff that was waging war on them was Buford Pusser. And uh, people who have uh, watched these types of movies, you might, may have heard of him. He's the actual guy that they base the Walking Tall movies off of. Now, um, that's a whole tangent we can go off into because uh, a lot of times people think the movies are um, are true, completely, 100% true. And then they find out the man didn't quite live up to what the movies portrayed him as. And that's Hollywood. That's the way the way they do. You know, they take a, a good story and then they spin it into whatever they want. But uh, so there's, that's kind of where it started. But kind of on the fringes of that group was a man by the name of Kirksey Nix. He was good friends with Head White. Well, after this big war and all these other state-line mobsters are killed off and die off and that all area kind of settles down, uh, there's still Kirksey Nix. And Kirksey Nix becomes... Uh, kind of a big wig In this Dixie Mafia And, and so it, it it the story has tentacles That stretch off into so many Other stories that we know And it's like it's been sitting there hiding All these years in plain sight You know um, but this, this Group of uh, They call them traveling criminals because they Literally that you can follow Their trail of crimes Throughout 13 different states In the south and so um, I had an investigator, um, a retired investigator call me out of Dallas. He's like, Hey, I've got some Dixie mafia stories for you. You know, uh, we found them over here and started in this date and we set up this and, you know, and so, um, uh, then I've got investigators in Georgia and Louisiana and Tennessee and, you know, it just crosses back and forth across the South. And, um, uh, and so, um, the thing is, is the Dixie Mafia is not organized in the same manner as the Italians. The Italians, you've got your, you've got your boss, then you've got an underboss, and then you've got your capos, and then you've got your soldiers, and then all of that still is under the umbrella of the commission. You get the five families, you know, so it's all set up like a, a major corporation. That way in the Dixie Mafia, the Italians have rules. You're not supposed to take another man's wife. You're not supposed another made man's wife. You're not supposed to kill um, anyone, you know, in the public eye. Uh, you know, like judges or newspaper uh, reporters or anything like that, because it brings too much heat. There's all sorts of little rules, and the main thing for the Italians is they wanted to keep. Um, they wanted. They didn't want any public, not you know, they didn't want to be out in the public. They didn't want to be exposed. They didn't want to bring on heat for law enforcement. The Dixie Mafia, on the other hand, they didn't care about law enforcement. They bought off the law enforcement because you've got the law enforcement up north. You've got the FBI. You've got all these things. Well, they're better funded than the the poor county sheriff down south who, who can barely put money on, uh, put food on the table for his family, you know. So it was real easy to offer him some big wad of cash and say, just look the other way when my boys come through town and I'll take care of your family, you know, so you can kind of see that they were at a disadvantage from the beginning. So the Dixie mafia, they had no such rules. If somebody wanted your woman, they would take your woman. And if you threw a fit, you'd be killed. If you, if they wanted what you had, if they liked whatever racket you were in, they would take your racket and, um, they would kill you for it. They they had no rules, they were very brutal, they run wild, but they had it basically you survived by your grit. If you were stronger, if you were more cunning, if you had more firepower, if you had more connections, it was just a battle of if you survived long enough you actually kind of got a um you kind of got a little bit more leverage over the group. So in reality, Kirksey Nix, he became what they call a Dixie Mafia boss. Technically, he just survived longer than everybody else, you know so it was very brutal, very vicious. They ran every kind of um, scam you can imagine all the all the standard scams and then some, but they were also hired hitmen and so you um, there 's evidence that shows a lot of uh, some of the times the Italians wanted to take someone out, but they didn't want to get their hands dirty with it. So they hired one of the Dixie Mafia thugs to do it. You know, so this is uh, where they did work together sometimes. But, um, uh, and in fact, Toehead White actually was a driver for Carlos Marcelo. Um, And so um, I don't know if that's where he kind of got his his flair for for crime or what, but he was always the well-dressed gangster uh, down south you know, you've got all the cowboy hats and the boots and the, you know, well, he was not like that. He he dressed more like the Italians. Um, and that's probably because as a, you know, a young teenager, he was, you know, driving for uh, an Italian mob boss. But, uh, so people want to think that they don't exist. People want to think that they're not organized, that they shouldn't be classed as mafia. But in reality, they are very organized. You had certain areas in certain scams ran by certain bosses and so um have you seen that you've know, seen the old tv show dukes of hazard where you've got the boss hog and and roscoe p coltrane well they they were portrayed as bumbling idiots but in reality that kind of gives you a glimpse of the status and the way the dixie mafia worked you come into a certain area and the boss had control over the crime in that area but you didn't have to kick up to him you you didn't you have to be part of his family you didn't have to do whatever if you could make money in that area and pay that boss enough uh that it would be okay he'd give you permission to do whatever in his county you know um and then the sheriff was always bought off the judge the local judge was bought off the you know the local attorney was bought off and so this so-called boss ran this area now if another boss came in and tried to take over, it would just be a battle of who was stronger and who had more firepower of who got it. So there was none of this loyalty, so so-called loyalty of the Italian mobs. There was no, there was no hierarchy or rules. It's just a matter of of who who was stronger at the moment. And uh, so, but that kind of gives you a glimpse. And then they were running everything that you can imagine, and in each state, each area had their own way of running their illegal wares. So follow the murders um, around the state. you can actually kind of lay out a grid pattern okay in the northern part of this state they ran truckers um, and they, and, and the when they got to the state line it would go across into crop dusters and, and then they would then they mailed everything in one state they just did everything through uh, through safety deposit boxes. And another state, they did P.O. boxes. They just mailed things, you know. And so um, each state, if you follow the murder trail, you can actually kind of get a a glimpse of how the organization worked. But the thing is, is they all tied back to um, Kirksey Nix and that uh, that original band of thugs that just kind of crisscrossed through the states this way and that way. And uh, I have a quote that I put on the back of my book. Um, people want to say that there's no such thing as the Dixie Mafia. But I I turn their attention to a report that was actually generated in 1974. Um, it was prepared by the Office of the Attorney General Vern Miller for the state of Kansas. And it is an intelligence report on the Dixie Mafia. And um, there is a quote in it that I put on the back of my book for people who still don't believe that there's such a thing. And uh, let's see, it's given by... Agent James Duff of the Georgia State organized Crime Intelligence Unit, it says there is no other group anywhere in the country as mobile and as well organized as the Dixie mafia and this is a um, intelligence officer giving this report to the Attorney general in nineteen seventy four so this is this is proof that this has been around for a long time that yes, they do exist and in uh, that it is something that you know people need to stop ignoring now nowadays, most people that are in this report, most of the people that are a part of this are gone um law enforcement as a whole says that the Dixie mafia doesn't exist anymore that they've kind of uh, merged over into a a gang of and in one prison and things uh but I believe that there's probably still some Dixie mafia uh people out there that are active and uh so uh, it's one of those things that we need to know how how it worked, and we need to solve some of these unsolved cases and and bring it to light because there's still some people around that were involved in these kinds of things.
1: Well, you kind of answered my question about if the is the Dixie Mafia still in operation in the southern states, and the other question I I want, would like you to address the rumor that. Uh, former President Bill Clinton was involved in some way. I know, mm-hmm. you know, it, it just takes reading a lot of news articles to find the trail of people close to, to the Clintons that no longer exist for one reason or another. Um, what are your feelings right. about that?
2: Well, I will tell you this. Um, I am not a conspiracy theorist. But there's a lot of information out there that talks about that. And I will tell you, when I do my writing, I never mention the big C. I never mention the big C because there's just a lot of evidence out there that, uh, that can show that it's true. And there's a lot of evidence that shows that uh, maybe it's inflated. But does, do they have connections with people? And those people perhaps had connections with the Dixie Mafia. Yeah, probably. Um, but uh, that's one of those things that I uh, I really it, it wouldn't surprise me in the least. And there's a lot of evidence out there that shows that it's true. Um, now, if they were individually involved, I can't say that. Um, I I I don't investigate them, you know. But I can tell you that uh, it's one of those subjects that I usually don't mention. I will go around the big C, and uh, and uh, just because there's just a lot out there that could be could be true. And so right. you know you've gotta I can't you got to use that a I
1: little
2: you. Bit of, you know. You gotta you gotta lose use a little bit of wisdom if you wanna wake up in the morning
1: you know <laughs> <those> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly well let's let's get down to the meat of your your new book silenced by the dixie okay. mafia and mm-hmm. this is about a 50 year old cold case that's connected to the dixie mafia so i'm going to let you go ahead and tell parts of the story that you want but I think it's I I have I know the story so I have to tell listeners out there this is just almost beyond comprehension but every bit of it is true and you really need to get the book silenced by the Dixie Mafia by Sonova Cantrell so that you can really get into the whole story so I'm going to let you go ahead and, and tell a little bit about it
2: yes um it's called Silence by the Dixie Mafia with a subtitle, The Anderson Files. Uh, the reason being is this case, this book revolves around uh, the Anderson family. The son is named Ronnie Anderson, and he was killed on uh, six weeks to the day almost after the ambush of Sheriff Buford Pusser, which we talked about him before. Um, he was killed on September 26, 1967. Uh, there was a suicide that was staged. And, um, but then there were so many questions around it that the sister has not believed it was a suicide from the beginning. Then 35 years later, her father finally admits to her, yes, it was a murder. There's the guy that did it. And he points him out in a, in a restaurant. And then four months later, another suicide all of a sudden, um, and the father's gone and then nothing makes sense about his suicide either. And so this uh, woman has gone, you know, over 50 years trying to get someone to listen to her. She's been called every name in the book. She has, you know, uh, people have just said, well, she's just a grieving family member that can't accept the truth. Um, but then, if you want to accept the truth, you kind of got to fill in all these gaps in your narrative. You know, if you if you say this is the truth and she just can't accept it, uh, she'll even say, well, prove me wrong show me you know i will accept it if you can prove this to me but what about this question and this question and this question and this glaring obvious question and and it just goes on and on and on well um i have had i have started out writing you know this case 18 months ago or so on my on my cold case blog that's how i met her and um it just kept building and building and building it took me 5 weeks just to highlight the case and uh, so I knew that it was a mess. Well, um, I didn't offer to write the book right away. She had, um, someone had come forward after I wrote my blog and, and kind of, it started bringing in witnesses, uh, witnesses started coming forward saying, Hey, I remember this. And so that's what my blog was for. So I thought, okay, I'm done. I've, I've brought in some leads on my, my parts over with, well, um, then comes in a, um, a an investigator who said she would she would investigate it and, and she was going to tie in uh, Phyllis's story in another Dixie Mafia book that she was writing and uh, I suggest you get that book too. Um, her name's T. A. Powell and um, it's um, the Deadline um, is her book. I think it's out on Amazon now. But anyway, the deal was is her book was about a, a bunch of cases and Phyllis's was just kind of put in with it well um Phyllis, she she came back and she's like well i i would really wish that someone would write a book about my brother you know and and it be focused on him and i told her i was like okay i'll do that you know because the story is connected with so many other stories that you literally can't fit it all in one book it's not you can't write an all encompassing book and so I told her, I said, okay, I will do my best to ch- keep it down to Ronnie. Because Ronnie was a 17-year-old crippled boy. He had polio, and one leg was shorter, smaller than the other, and he had to wear all these leg braces. He had all kinds of, of mental and emotional problems because he had this severe inferiority complex. And he he was, nowadays, if he would have had all sorts of labels, um, you know, because we understand mental health a little better. But back then, it was something not talked about, and he just craved acceptance. Well, the one time he gets accepted by his peers and they say, hey, you want to go for a drive tonight, he borrows his dad's car, and they're actually going to use him as a pawn in the ambush of Buford Pusser and his wife. And their first plan doesn't work out. So then the second plan comes in, they just drive by and and ambush the car. And we know how the story turned out, but that wasn't the original plan. Well, killed six weeks later because he is trying to leave the area and go live with his sister for a while. And they were afraid he would tell what they used him for. And so my whole, my whole Point for writing this book was to remember him because the father made some decisions and got involved in things he shouldn't have. And he was easily manipulated because of his, his um, addiction, but he was still an adult. He still made decisions and Ronnie was the child that got killed because of those decisions. And so this book, I really try to highlight all of the cases that this case touches but I really continuously bring it back to the victim, Ronnie Anderson. And so um, that's what this book is about. Um, it touches the state line mob. You'll, you'll hear all sorts of things about the state line mob. You'll learn some behind-the-scenes things about Buford Pusser. Uh, you'll find, you'll find some, some theories and you'll find some evidence. You'll find some witness statements. Um, You know, there's witnesses that continuously come forward now that the Dixie Mafia is really, you know, starting to become a media thing. People are really starting to get interested. So there's people that says, yeah, I remember when, and they'll come forward and tell their stories. And so um, this book really covers and touches base with all of those. But see, this is the major famous case it was connected to was the ambush of Buford Pester and his wife, Pauline. Of course, Pauline died in ambush. Buford lost half of his face. Well, um, that's the first case it's tied to. 20 years later, it's tied into another infamous case where the Dixie Mafia kills a judge and his wife in their own home. And so it's connected to case after case after case. And so it was really hard. And, and I told uh, the editor when he when he went to edit the book for me, I told him, I said this is the hardest book I've ever had to write. Yes, um it there's some gruesome details in there. Yes, it's it's heart-wrenching to see what happened to this boy, but I said it was the hardest thing to write because it would have been so easy to go off on a tangent on every single story included in this. So this book just gives you a real behind the scenes look of the 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 chaos and the trauma that the Anderson family suffered and how it's connected to everything else. Um, and that's what this book is. And then at the end, I, I put out a public plea uh, for help. If you are a, um, a legitimate investigator, if you are, you know, someone that can get this case reopened, there's all sorts of evidence that's come forward that can be, that would stand up in a court of law. You know, so I put, I end the book with a Uh, We need a hero. Are you that hero? And that's how the book ends because 54 years is a long time to fight for justice. Um, And quite frankly, uh, Phyllis feels like if they, everybody was put in court today and sent to prison for the rest of their lives, it wouldn't be justice, you know, because they've spent 54 years living their lives. So what justice is there, you know? But just the getting her brother's story told was very important to her. And so that's what this is. It's going to give you all kinds of insider information about how you can get sucked into something like this and then the consequences of such a decision um, if you let yourself get mixed up in something like this.
1: Well, what Does that is your question <laughs> what <it? laughs> absolutely what is the case uh, status as of right now is it still an open investigation have they just closed no. the case um no. i know you it's know awful. her father was also murdered in in very mm-hmm. suspicious nature as well right. so uh, yep. what what yep. is anyone doing on these cases if nothing. anything nothing
2: absolutely nothing uh, law enforcement uh, she sent a for re- four-year request and, and doing all the things And, and they have just sh- shut her down and, and labeled her as a grieving family member That won't accept the truth And they still claim it's all suicide Even though there's so many glaring questions Even though there's none of the witness statements Corroborate each other um, And they're, they're, they're doing nothing Absolutely nothing There's one um, investigator that wrote her book Um, And she is, uh, you know, she's, she'll get some tips and stuff periodically and things, but no official law enforcement is doing anything.
1: So they, they, they actually ruled both her brother and her father's murder, which was what, 20 years later? Wasn't it something like 35 35. years later? Mm -hmm. They've ruled both of those as suicide.
2: Yes. Yes, so
1: and if that you read the
2: autopsy the report, yeah, right. And see, the thing is, is even the, uh, one of the uh, coroners was actually called Suicide Hightower because if he didn't, if he was wanting to go out to lunch or he didn't have time, it was on a weekend, or he didn't want to put the effort in, he would label it suicide and shut the case, and he was actually nicknamed Suicide Hightower. He died here a while back, but they actually... Nicknamed him suicide high tower because and I'm like that alone should be enough, and then the questions that go along with this suicide should be enough for you to look at it
1: again. but nobody's willing to take that step forward and even even look at it,
2: right, right, and that's why we're trying to go with this avenue because we know if we can get it in front of enough people if we can get enough eyeballs on it there'll be enough of a public outcry that somebody will have to step up and do something because nowadays every few weeks you hear about another cold case being solved. Um, you know, another cold case being reopened and things like that, um, because of podcasts, because of documentaries, because of books. And, uh, so this is kind of the last ditch ever. I mean, uh, Phyllis is in her seventies. And, uh, so I'm like, she's not going to live forever. And, uh, she's like, This is kind of her last ditch effort. What else is she going to do? You know, she's she's tried to to contact every Lauren.
1: She. For the last 50-some years, this woman has – I mean, this has consumed her every single day. And not mm-hmm. – I don't think it's – you know, I don't think it's it's consumed her in, in a crazy way. I, I'm just saying right. it that way. But right. this is really meaningful to her. And, it, it, mm-hmm. again, justice is not served, and it never really will be. But right. how many other people have gone down the same road? And right. come up with the same roadblocks. Let me ask right. you: What jurisdiction are the are both of these cases in the same jurisdiction or different? Yeah,
2: they're both in Mississippi. Yeah, no, they're both in. I believe they're both in Gulfport, Mississippi.
1: Okay, so there's basically one agency that has held on to both of these cases, ruled them suicides. So basically, in their eyes, that's case closed. We don't have to do anything right. more. We don't have to investigate right. anything. We don't have right. to tell you anything because the case is closed. And and so then you've right. got family members out there with tons and tons of evidence that says otherwise, mm-hmm. and you can't do anything with it.
2: Right, well, and that's the thing uh, when when you try to get a um, and then there's there's all these outside sources that will come in and do things, but they always wait for law enforcement to ask them in, so there's no way that they're ever going to come in because law enforcement has already labeled her um, as a grieving law, uh, grieving family member that won't accept the truth. I mean that's basically what it said in his uh, FOIA, she sent this request, FOIA request. I'm looking through my papers real quick. Um, So Gulfport Police Department Detective Investigative Report. Okay, and this was done in in August 1st, 2017. Um, And he has basically said that she is a grieving, this is the different steps that he supposedly did. And then this is, she's just a grieving family member that won't accept
1: the truth. So that's just it. So I'm, that's it. I, have it. To, I have to really give you a lot of credit for taking this case on and writing this book for Phyllis, because I, I mean, we interviewed her on Crimewire, wire, gosh, a couple of years ago, I think. And at that yeah. time, I mean, I went through the whole interview with my jaw dropping seriously, and I yeah. told Denny at that time. I said, "Somebody has got to write this book because there's just yeah. it's just the facts and the evidence, and and even her feelings are just overwhelming. It's it's just yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It, it's a very compelling story, and it's yeah. true." That's that's the whole thing. Yeah. This is a true story. Sure. This is not just a story made up. It's it's the truth. Well, right. let's tell everyone where can we buy Silenced by Dixie Mafia?
2: Well, Silenced by the Dixie Mafia uh, is actually live on Amazon now. So you can go to Anders, uh, go to uh, go to Amazon dot com and and type in Silenced by the Dixie Mafia. And uh, you'll see my book pop up, and you can get it there. There's an e-book available, and there is a, uh, a paperback available. I am looking to um, creating an audio book, an audible book, but that will be a few months off for now. Then uh, we've got a series of interviews that I will be releasing uh, for my YouTube channel. And, uh, and then, of course, I'm on Facebook all over the place. And I've got a new Patreon page uh, that I just started because there's all sorts of pictures and and family documents and things that I didn't include in the book. Um, so if you want to go on Patreon and look up Sonova Inc., you can uh, get on there. And there's different, of course, the way Patreon works. You've got different memberships. You can uh, pay five dollars a month, fifteen or twenty five to be uh, 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 to support Sonova Inc. to support me. Well. Um, and to and with that, then you get different things. And so, for basically the price of coffee, you can get a whole bunch of behind-the-scenes uh, look at Sonova Inc. and the different things there was. Uh, for this case alone, I made a trip to Hot Springs, Arkansas, to the Mob World Summit, and uh, there's all kinds of behind-the-scenes pictures there uh, of Phyllis and I's journey there. That is going to be on the Patreon page and stuff. So there's all sorts of ways you can get on there. But uh, uh, the main thing I want everyone to know is, is this book is about Ronnie Anderson. It's about the victim's family. Um, And as that's the way I write everything, I always come from the side of the grieving family members. And part of the proceeds of everything that I do, I donate to Missouri Missing Organization. Um, So by supporting so Nova Inc., by supporting me, you're supporting Missouri Missing. And so that is a really excellent organization ran by two, um, ran by several people, but it was founded by two mothers who lost their child. Um, and uh, the main head lady is Marianne, and she lost her daughter 17 years ago. She knows what happened. Um, her It was a domestic violence thing. And... Uh, but the, the guy got off. The guy got off with just a couple years. He said it was an accident, um, and the but then he won't tell him where the body is. And so um, she has spent 17 years with a shovel in her trunk. Somebody gives her a tip, she can go out and dig for her child. And uh, But yet she's taken that pain and created something amazing to help the world around her and created Missouri Missing. And so... Um, Portion of everything I do goes to them And so I um, I Always try to talk about them in every interview That I do because um, that's Something I highly suggest you guys Go and, and share their, their every month Every week they send out the New uh, posters for The missing loved ones and things like That you can you know even if you don't want To support them financially you can go and Just share their share their posters You know um, and It's a very a very good organization that I highly, um, I highly recommend you support. So, uh, that's what, that's all the different things I have Facebook and then my website, SonovaInc.com. You're
1: right. Missouri Missing is an excellent organization, and I'm familiar with with the ladies who, uh, who run the place on a daily basis and the hard work that yep. they've done, and and you know the. The heartbreak that they've all gone through. So it's it's yeah. definitely a, a great organization that deserves deserves your donations and deserves to um, have their cases highlighted. We'll, mm-hmm. uh, we're run out of time, believe it or not. <laughs> This this has been a great conversation with you, and and I'm just so happy to find out all of the other things that you you do besides writing these books. And and once again, I'm thrilled that you were the one that Phyllis chose to bring this case to a book because there's just so much to it. There's so much that... You know, you, you, you'll you just be sitting there reading it from cover to cover very quickly, I'm sure. So yes. as we come to a close of this episode of CrimeWire, we hope that Dennis Griffin will be back with us next time. And until then, everyone be kind to each other. Uh-huh.